0: Let's worship him together now in prayer. Our God in heaven, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you love sinners. Thank you for providing a way to you. We thank you for such an efficient Savior. We're grateful for a spirit that raises us to life and allows us faith and the ability to praise you and to worship you. We thank you now for the power of the cross and what it's done for us, lifting us up out of our deadness, deadness and trespasses and sin, being subject even to the, the ways of this world and the very demonic presence that wars against you. We were once there, but no longer in Christ We thank you that you have given us new life that is not only in the here and now a new and fresh way to live, but lives on for eternity because now we can worship you, now we can love you, now we can obey you, now you can be pleased with us as we bear the righteousness of your own Son. We are grateful for this. And as we gather now in worship of you, we ask that you would speak to us. We have praised you with our lips and our hearts in music. Now would you speak to us through your word and allow me, Father, to speak well on the things that are before us and together that we hear the voice of our God. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I was noticing and preaching. Uh, Andrew, could you just stand and turn around for a minute? There's a, there's a passage of scripture on your back. I can't see it yet. There you go. It's Proverbs 24, rescue those being led away to death. I appreciate, thank you, the ministry that these folks have shared, and they're not only rescuing the, the unborn, but they're presenting the gospel that gives life to those that are living and considering abortion. Um, that's a two-fold expression of life. Just this week, there was a rather sad story in the news where um, an individual went into a Bible study group of elderly folks and killed them and then killed himself. Not to make light of that, but I heard one of the commentators say, if you're contemplating murder-suicide, start with suicide. That's kind of an amusing way to present something that's an awful tragedy, but the church goes one step further than that in addressing the one that is contemplating murder and suicide in that the one contemplating suicide, we have the answer for, don't we? And that answer is faith in Christ. And the picture that we have here in the book of Romans, chapter 4, which I believe is a critical chapter for our understanding of the gospel. So I invite you to turn there. We're going to return to our study of Romans, chapter 4, concluding the chapter this morning. But I'd like to pick up and read, starting in verse 16, as Paul writes on the faith, the, the precious work of faith that God does for dying lost sinners. A man like Abraham. Start in verse 16. Follow along with me. For this reason, it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise would be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of faith in Abraham, the faith of Abraham, rather, who is the father of us all. As it is written, A father of many nations have I made you, in the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope, he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. One of the striking features that scripture gives to us of Abraham, especially in this passage, is his faith. And this was highlighted last week in the reading of Hebrews chapter 1 at the beginning of our worship service. And we have to ask, I believe, how did this pagan, idol-worshiping man come to believe God In such an incredible way that God would bestow or impute his righteousness on this pagan man. And the short answer may well be that his faith is not the incredible part. Rather the object of his faith is who is God. Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. As it says in Romans 4 and verse 3. Abraham's faith was credible because he believed in God, but the God that was far more credible. Therefore, the object of faith is the greatness, the glory, the majesty of God himself. But even that does not fully answer how this man's faith came to be so substantial that God would impute righteousness to him. More to the point, how did this sinful pagan come to see God for who he is? How did this man come to see God? God as the object of his faith. Unsaved people don't see God in this way. They may be entirely pagan and worldly, or they may be very religious and claim to know God, but the rejection of the gospel shows they do not see God for who he truly is, as is said of Abraham here. How did this pagan unbeliever come to see God for who he is? A God who can be fully trusted in his promises. How did he come to know that God is truthful, faithful, trustworthy, or powerful enough? As it says there in verse 21, how did he see, how did he see God is able to perform these miracles, to fulfill his promises? Sovereign to direct the course of nations even, and omniscient to perfectly accomplish his will. How did Abraham come to this? In last week's scripture reading, out of Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 8, we read, By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. The calling of God is an important detail in Abraham's faith, as it is true of all believers. The calling of God, we have to see, is more than just God's voice speaking and inviting a sinner to come to him and then leaving that sinner to figure it out for himself. That's not the call of God. Rather, God is actively involved in opening the mind of a sinner to understand the word that God has just spoken to them. And we see an example of this as the resurrected Jesus was walking along the road to Emmaus and met two disciples. You remember the story in Luke chapter 24. We read that at the beginning of their journey together with Jesus, they were telling Jesus, whom they did not recognize in his glorified state, they were telling him that they had such hopes of this Jesus the Nazarene that he would be the promised redeemer of Israel, until they heard of his crucifixion and death. And although they were aware of the rumors that Jesus had been raised or had been spotted alive, Jesus declared of these two men that they were foolish and slow of heart to believe. It was not until later that Jesus, in Luke chapter 24, this is what we read, Jesus opened their minds to understand. He opened their minds to understand. In Acts, we read of the conversion of a woman named Lydia who was listening to Paul preach the gospel to her. And in Acts chapter 16 and verse 14, we read that the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. We're seeing the description of the calling of God, a God that opens the mind to understand his word, a God that opens the heart to respond to the gospel. And adding to this, Paul wrote to the believers in Thessalonica, describing how they had come to faith through his gospel preaching. He writes, Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you, for our God did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 Verse 4 and 5. We understand by the teaching of God's word that for a sinner to come to faith, they must be born again by the Spirit of God, as Jesus taught in John chapter 3. Passages like these teach us that faith is worked by God in the heart of those raised to life in Christ. The ones chosen by God, Paul writes, will hear the gospel. But it is not the word preached alone that causes faith. It is the gospel word that comes to the sinner by the power of the Holy Spirit who does a work of full conviction within the heart, as Paul writes. God is the one that opens the heart and the mind to receive the message of the cross by faith. Now, while faith certainly has a human element to it, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 says that Jesus is what? The author and the perfecter of our faith. With Abraham, as with all who God calls to himself, his power and his convicting work is active in the work of faith. And therefore, when God called Abraham, he didn't just say, Abraham, come to me. God actually did a work in that pagan man's dead heart. Raising him to life by the power of the Spirit and bringing the full weight of conviction by God, opening the mind, opening the heart, faith is not simply man choosing something. God is actively working in the heart if it's biblical, genuine, saving faith. On several occasions over the years, I've shared my, in my messages what Spurgeon and James Montgomery Boyce and others have written and taught about genuine saving faith. And in your notes, I've noted there are three elements that they, that they highlight in genuine faith. Now, I just read a commentary where somebody ex- expanded that further into five points, but I think it is condensed well for our understanding in three elements of faith. And I'm going to use Spurgeon's approach because it is clear in the language that he uses. First, there is the knowledge of the truth. Second, there is belief in the truth of the gospel. And third, there is trust in the truth of the gospel. First, the knowledge of the truth. Before anyone can be saved, they have to know what the truth is. And this is what Paul wrote in the 10th chapter of Romans, verse 17. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. The gospel has to be heard. The knowledge of Christ, the knowledge of God, the knowledge of sinful men have to be proclaimed. And that's our part. We communicate the knowledge of the gospel of truth. And this is where we preach Christ. We communicate Christ. We invite people to come and hear the message of Christ. But we can't do the work on the heart that only God can do. We can just call sinners to repentance. We can just articulate the gospel. But it's an essential part that God has given to the church to believers to communicate. Even as we share the Tiny Heartbeats ministry does with those that are seeking answers. This is why we proclaim the gospel. But second, that knowledge must be believed to be true. It must be believed to be true. And how much do we need to believe in order to be saved? Well, I would say everything from God's word that we learn. We can't deny any of God's truth. That doesn't mean we know all of it, even as Abraham did not know. But we have to begin with the gospel itself. And if it's a true saving faith, the believer will believe all that God speaks. But that even is not enough. Because the scripture says, even the demons know the truth. They have the knowledge of God. And they tremble for what they know to be true about God and his son, Jesus Christ. And therefore, saving faith must be more than hearing truth, more than believing the truth. The gospel must be trusted in. And in this trusting in the gospel, the sinner repents, which means they come to understand, I was living this way, I can do it no longer. I turn from that. And I turn to the living Christ. I turn to the gospel. I turn to the cross. The substitutionary atonement of the Savior. They trust in his word. Trust in his sacrificial atonement on behalf of their sin. They surrender their lives to his lordship. And they endeavor to walk in his ways. In faith, they trust in the promise of God to save them through the gospel. It's a faith that trusts God in this way It fully believes that God has the power to save, that he graciously saves all who come to him by faith, and he turns no one away that do come to him in faith. That trust must be present. And this is a faith that trusts God to forgive sins, that God accepts the believer and adopts them into his family, granting to them eternal life. It's a faith that trusts that God no longer condemns them for sin. Since God's son took their judgment on himself and fully paid for those sins. We are going to recognize that in our worship this morning as we take the bread and the cup together. Saving faith rests upon the promise of God to save those who believe in him in this way. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. This morning, we're going to be examining the quality of Abraham's faith, the qualities, I should say, of Abraham's faith and of those who believe as Abraham did. Paul continues to use this Old Testament saint as an example of a faith in God whereby God justifies apart from works of man. And we begin in verse 18 down through 22, Abraham's perseverance in faith. That's one of the five points we've been learning about in our Sunday school class, and I actually do prefer that expression, perseverance of the saints, even though we know it's God that is preserving. This is speaking about the response of faith that is in a genuine believer. There is this perseverance. Paul's examination of Abraham's faith in verses 18 to 22 highlights this for us, but it is contrary, I want you to notice, to all of his circumstances. He then describes, Paul describes, what this kind of justifying faith looks like. These are the characteristics of a faith worked in the heart of those who are called by God. And when we think of a faith that perseveres, we're not talking about a faith that has all the answers, and Abraham is an example of that, or that even knows all that God is going to do. And again, Abraham didn't know all that God was going to do to accomplish salvation. But in spite of our circumstances, we can trust in what God has promised us as well as trusting in his care for the things where God has not made a promise. And we'll talk more about that at the end. Our faith perseveres because of the God that we trust in. He is the object of our faith and therefore we persevere. Number one in this study, verse 18 and 19. Faith that does not depend upon circumstances. Faith does not depend on circumstances. Verse 18 opens with this expression in hope against hope, he, Abraham, believed. The ESV reads, in hope he believed against hope. This is like saying, Abraham believed God while he and Sarah hoped for children, even though they were. Beyond the age of bearing children. They were too old. Their age gave no reason for them to believe they were actually going to have a child. They hoped for children, but the physical reality denied them this hope. God promised Abraham then a fresh and a living spiritual hope. And by faith, Abraham believed in God's trustworthiness. God's ability to carry this out, as verse 21 says. The hope that God gave him stood against the physical hope that Abraham had for a son. God came to Abraham, called him to be the father of many nations, and Abraham believed that God would do just that. He would make him a father. And in this sense, hope was the desire for something that might come to pass. Faith is the confidence that God will make it happen just as he promised. A promise that gave him a hope in God that he knew would come to pass. Therefore, Abraham believed the unbelievable. Once again, this man's faith was not the incredible part to be noticed here, though his faith was certainly credible. The incredible part is the God that Abraham believed in. Genesis 15, God had taken Abraham outside and into the night, and he said, look up into the heavens. He was told by God, count the stars if that's even possible. And then God says, your family tree is going to look like that. This is what your family heritage, your lineage will be. The object of Abraham's faith was God, and this caused a childless old man to believe that he was about to have a huge family lineage. Abraham was about to have a son, and by that offspring he would become a father of many nations. Only God could bring something like that to pass. And verse 19 clarifies this reality in Abraham's faith. Paul said this man was so old, he was as good as dead. This is language that we're just not going to use with one another today. We're not going to talk about the older generation in that way. But I think the point is clear enough. This man is approaching 100 years of age, and even though God would grant him many more years, Abraham saw himself at this moment, as Paul writes. It's just about done. I'm as good as dead. I can't have children anymore. And then he turns the attention on Sarah, who doubly was not able to produce. She was not only barren as a young woman, but she had passed the age where she could even bear children. And yet we see, by faith, Abraham did not take into account the circumstances, the age factor. The barrenness of his wife. He's approaching a hundred years old when he has Isaac. And therefore when he gave life to Isaac, he was about 99. Sarah's 90 years old. He sees those circumstances, the scripture says. He understands his limitations. He knows the physical reality. There's no hope here. I'd hope for something. It's not going to happen. Then God speaks. And now he has a fresh hope. God has said, and I believe. So where there were no grounds for hope, Abraham put his hope in the God that he had faith in. It is by faith in God that Abraham did not allow his circumstances to diminish the hope that he had in the promise of God. And second, verse 20. It's a faith that doesn't waver. Notice that. It's a faith that doesn't waver. It's not only not based on our circumstances. It's not going to waver. This one might be a little bit harder for us to digest. But Paul says in a very similar way, verse 20 shows that Abraham's faith did not waver in unbelief, but actually grew strong, giving glory to God. Now, there's maybe a little bit of a a slight difference between a faith that's weakened and a faith that's wavering. I think Paul is emphasizing a similar thing in faith, but there's slightly different nuances a faith weakened would have questioned the promise of God where the circumstances said otherwise. But a faith that didn't waver, he says that's connected with unbelief. This is where you begin to lose faith in God himself. And Abraham did not. It didn't waver in his view of God, in his understanding of God. It didn't turn to unbelief, thinking God's unwilling to fulfill his promise. God's not able To fulfill his promise. God wasn't really sincere when he made the promise. Didn't question God's character. That's what we're seeing in Abraham's faith. He didn't question the character, the ability, the promise, the trustworthiness of God. His faith didn't even waver in becoming unbelief. Now we may look at Abraham and say, well, he's got a super special kind of faith then. Paul is talking about a peculiar faith that's not all that much like ours. We may think that Paul is showing us an exceptional faith in Abraham, but in truth, he's showing us a common faith that all believers, all true believers in Christ have. All those that God calls to his son, they're called to believe, justified, apart from works. We know there are times when our faith falters, even as we see in Peter, and in truth, even in Abraham as well. Paul was not suggesting that Abraham's faith was without imperfections, only that his faith did not turn into unbelief in God himself, as it says in verse 20. You just recall that Abraham did not immediately receive the promise that God spoke to him in Genesis chapter 15. Because if you turn to the next chapter, Genesis 16, Abraham and Sarah are talking about, well, how is God going to perform this? We believe God. Sarah says, I got an idea. I've got a handmaid, Hagar. We're too old to have kids. Let's kick this promise into motion. She gives Hagar to Abraham, and from that union, they produce a son they name Ishmael. At the end of chapter 16, we read that at that point, Abraham was 86 years old, and apparently he was able to produce children then. Of course, this was not God's plan to bring this promised child through Hagar. And in chapter 17, God let Abraham know that Ishmael was not the chosen child. And by this time, Abraham is 99 years old and Ishmael is 13. So in Genesis chapter 17, God reiterates the promise that he made 13 years earlier in Genesis 15. But the promise had not been fulfilled yet. And Abraham and Sarah no doubt are still wondering because here they have Ishmael. Certainly they thought this was the promised child. In chapter 17 of Genesis, in verse 17, we hear that after God said, no, 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 it's not Ishmael. I'm going to bring my promised son and the the promise of you're going to be a father of nations through your own son coming through Sarah, the old woman that is barren and beyond having children. And it says in Genesis 17, 17, at that moment, Abraham fell down on his face and he laughed. He laughed. And he thought in his heart, as God knew, he thought, can I have a child at such a ripe old age of 100? And what about my wife, who's now 90 years old? He's chuckling, thinking, how could this be? This is a faith that is faltering. It still believes in the promise of God. And he thought he had an answer through Ishmael then God comes with this surprise says, "No, no, no, it's coming through Sarah. Paul even writes that Abraham contemplated his own body at 100, thinking his life was just about done on this planet. He was confessing that he simply wasn't physically able. At this point, he didn't think he was able to accomplish what God had promised. And this is curious since after Sarah died, Abraham took on another wife, had six more children, and would live to be 175 years old. Perhaps Abraham was merely contemplating how ridiculous this promise seemed to him at that moment. And because God promised to bless Abraham, perhaps God renewed his strength to live another 75 years and to have six more children. Nonetheless, after God promised to give Abraham a son, it was not until 14 years later that Sarah conceived and gave birth to Isaac according to the word of the Lord. Yet even in Abraham laughing about the whole matter, after considering his age, his wife's age, and her barrenness, their physical limitations, it says his faith did not weaken in God's promise to him. He still believed that God would fulfill this. He didn't know that the, the circum- he didn't know the, the way that God would do this. He saw his own circumstances and was puzzled. But he still believed. We certainly understand Abraham's bewilderment and even maybe his curious concern, given the age of he and his wife and the inability of Sarah to conceive. What we don't see here is Abraham saying to God, oh, I don't think you can pull this one off. It would seem that God in his providence Determined to make the birth of Isaac such a visible miracle that faith would be put to the test in a very tangible way, that the hand of God would be clearly seen as accomplishing his purposes. God picked two very old people and a woman that was barren. And he made a promise and then didn't fulfill that promise for 14 years. And still, this man believed. And it says it's a faith that didn't waver. Adding to this, um, while well, Abraham stumbled over these promises, remember that God also tested Abraham and said, Now I want you to sacrifice him to me. And by then, Isaac is a young teenager. Abraham truly did stumble at times, but we see the manifestation of his faith growing, as it says here in Romans 4. It didn't waver, it grew so that when later Abraham was challenged to sacrifice this son, Abraham did not disbelieve God. He went ahead, prepared to strike down his son. He told his son, God will provide a lamb. It'll be okay, Isaac. But there's even more to it than that. We see the evidence of a growing faith that would give glory to God in Hebrews chapter 11. If you would turn back there, because the author of Hebrews actually spoke to this. Where was Abraham's faith in all of this? In the promised son, years later, a young teenage boy is about to be sacrificed, but this son is the promised child. This is the boy that would make him a father of many nations, and God is asking him, now strike him down and sacrifice him to me. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17, 18, and 19, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, And he who had received the promise was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. You see how the author of Hebrews is building us up? This is the promised child. Verse 19. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. You see, Abraham was thinking God would provide land, but even if he doesn't and I strike him down, he'll raise him up. This is a faith that grew. It's a faith that grew. And it came to give glory to God. That's how Paul ends that statement, isn't it? Yet with respect, verse 20, to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. This is what faith looks like when it's under the work of the author and perfecter of our faith. It's a faith that may start out infantile, may have questions, may even stumble in our our thoughts as it did with Abraham. But he did not waver to believe that God is God and his promises are sure. And third, faith that is fully assured. Verse 21 And being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to perform. What Abraham's faith did for him is it caused him to believe God is able. I had absolute confidence. I don't know how he's going to do it. I don't know how he's going to pull it off. I don't know how he's going to answer my prayer. We sung of prayer this morning. We don't always know. But we know that God is able. Sometimes God is able to do it as we pray. If he doesn't answer our prayer in that way, he's able to do his sovereign will. He's obviously able to do what is good and righteous and never to do otherwise. But the belief that God is able. A third quality in the faith that God worked in Abraham was that he was fully assured that what God promised, he was able to accomplish. And this again emphasizes that the strength of Abraham's faith was not in his own spiritual discipline but was found in the character of God himself, which is the object of Abraham's faith. He trusted the ability of God to do as he promised. He trusted in the goodness of God to bring saving hope to the nations. He trusted that God would provide all that was necessary for this plan, such that he would give glory to God. Paul says he was fully assured in God's ability. Now, at first glance, I thought that to test on Mount Moriah would have been a good example of that. Sacrificing his own son. And it certainly is a good example of the strength that Abraham's faith had become. But I want you to notice that Paul sets the context with the very next verse. Look at verse 22. Therefore it was also credited to him in righteousness. Really, I should back up and read the two of them together. Being fully assured that what God had promised, he was also able able to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. This is telling us that Abraham's faith, as described in verse 21, is not all the way when he sacrificed or was called to sacrifice Isaac, but it backs way back to verse 6 of Genesis 15. When God made that promise. That was the strength. That was the assurance of faith. Abraham had when God made that promise. In Genesis 15 verse 6. Because Paul cites that verse. Following his assessment. Of Abraham being fully assured of God's ability. To accomplish this magnificent work. This means that he was fully assured of God's ability. Before God had performed. Any of his promises. Before any of them had been fulfilled. The assurance of Abraham was not a proven track record of some observable miracles or the fulfillment of God's promise yet to provide that sum. But sometime before... Even back in Genesis chapter 12, God had called Abraham out of his pagan land and idolatrous worship. God promised to make him a great nation back in Genesis 12, that he would be blessed of God and that from him all the families of the earth would be blessed. God further promised to give his heirs the land of Canaan. And this began a relationship between God and this undeserving man, had received this gracious offer from God, whereby from that day forward, all the way back in Genesis 12, Abraham, then Abram, lived under the continual blessing of God. Once again, he observed God's graciousness. He experienced God's grace, his provision, the good hand of God's benevolent blessing, and his assurance then rested on the character of and the ability of God, an assurance and a revelation of himself, of God's self to Abraham, that placed within the heart of this man who had experienced God's blessing. We're witnessing the work of God in creating faith. And this brings us to verse 23 to 25 where we'll close out this chapter. It's our final look at Romans 4. Paul is, has a way here of applying Abraham's faith to his spiritual family. So he's moving beyond Abraham now to talk about Abram's family. Verse 23. Now not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited, speaking of the imputed righteousness of God. As those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over because of our transgressions, And was raised because of our justification. The sinner is justified by faith apart from works. In other words, salvation then and now is according to God's unchanging grace. God did not save sinners in the Old Testament any different than he does today. Neither Abraham, David, Moses, the Jews, or any religious Gentile can enter the kingdom of heaven by their own spiritual efforts. Paul emphasizes, chapter 4, in these verses, 23, 24, and 25, this reality. In faith, the sinner must look to the saving grace of God alone as provided through the atoning sacrifice of his Son, Jesus Christ. And in this final text, we will give just a very brief overview of the summary that Paul provides his readers in these verses of what he'd been saying to us in the past several chapters. Believers' participation by faith. This is where we become involved in the faith that saved Abraham. First, verse 23 and 24, the witness of justification. Paul lets us know that Abraham's declaration I'm sorry, that God's declaration of Abraham's justification in Genesis 15 was not for Abraham's benefit alone. It was a message proclaimed to him, and it was meant to be a witness to all who believe. That is to say, God imputed his righteousness to Abraham on the basis of his faith in the promise of God. Verse 2 says that Abraham was therefore not justified by God because of his own works, This is verse 2 of chapter 4. Abraham was therefore not justified by God because of his own works or merits, but because he put his belief and trust in God's word to him. And this word or the promise of God was that a child would be given to him that would be the source of a spiritual inheritance, bringing many nations to faith as Abraham had. And through Abraham's son, God promised to provide a blessing to many nations, pointing ahead to the Savior that would bring salvation to all who believed. And in this way, Abraham would be the father of many nations. These things about Abraham's faith and the promise of God to him are are written not just to describe the way in which God credited righteousness to that man, but for the sake of all who believed just as Abraham did. And the point that Paul makes is that this Old Testament saint of God is an example to us of justification by faith apart from works as the expression of God's saving grace extended to all sinners who savingly believe apart from their own works. In other words, believe unto salvation. The scripture records these things so that we might be saved in the same way that God saved Abraham and all the Old Testament saints. Paul repeated the witness of Scripture. The end of this book, Romans 15, verse 4, whatever was written in earlier times, Paul writes, was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and encouragement of Scripture, we have hope, the same hope that we see in Abraham. The saints of the past were saved in the same way as the saints of the present. God justifies sinners by faith apart from works. God's saving grace has not changed. And this leads us to the verse 24, the means of justification. Verse 24 highlights the means of this justification by grace. Just like Abraham, it is those who believe in God the one who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. And as noted before, what made Abraham's faith incredible was not that he had accomplished anything, rather it was the object of his faith that was credible. He believed in the God who made the promise and who is was faithful and fully able to accomplish all that he promises. It was not Abraham's faith, remember, that saved him. God is the one who saves. It is the cross that provides salvation. Faith is only the means that gets us there, but faith itself is not what saves us. God provided salvation to Abraham through the lineage promised to this Old Testament believer. Abraham was literally putting his faith in the cross of Christ to save him. That lineage would accomplish, would bring about the promised Messiah, who would one day come and accomplish salvation. Faith was only the means that provided Abraham salvation. Just as was true of Abraham, who looked forward to this promise, so also are all who justified, who believe in the salvation that we look back to. Abraham looked forward to what we look back to as our redemption. And then in verse 25, The work of justification. Faith is the means. But the work of justification is what Jesus did on the cross. And here Paul says, it's Jesus our Lord, who is he who delivered over. He was delivered over for our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. This is the significance of the heir promised to Abraham. Isaac, though the miracle son, was not just the promised heir. He would provide the lineage whereby God would bring about his son's salvation. He would bring his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. And this heritage would be the source of the true children of Abraham. Paul is identifying the spiritual lineage then of Abraham's descendants. But here we see that Paul was not uninterested in Abraham's physical lineage either. Most important was the truth that this heritage would provide a Savior through the physical line of Abraham. And that Messiah, that Savior, would do the work for sinners that we, the sinner, can never do for ourselves. As the Son of God, He would live the perfect, sinless life. He would offer His life to God in exchange for the sins of His people. And this He would do on the cross of His own suffering, a blood sacrifice that was necessary to atone for sins. God would lay those sins upon His Son, who would take the punishment on Himself, the punishment that our sins deserved. He would willingly surrender His life over to death to make full payment for the sins of His people. And as Paul writes, Jesus was delivered over because of our transgressions. The sacrificial suffering, death of Christ on the cross, made full atonement for our sins. But note the resurrection. The resurrection secures the salvation of God's people. As we read, God raised his son out of the grave because of justification. Now that's interesting because by contrast, if you jump ahead to chapter 5 in Romans and verse 9, Paul seems to indicate that our justification was accomplished by the blood of Christ, his sacrifice, his atonement on the cross. Why does he attribute our justification here, then, to the resurrection? I suppose the authority text on the resurrection is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where the gospel is validated by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because of his resurrection, all believers in Christ are assured to be resurrected themselves. Paul even wrote that if Christ had not been raised from the dead in 1 Corinthians 15... Then his gospel preaching was in vain, and our faith is in vain also. And then in verse 16 and 17 of 1 Corinthians 15, we read these words. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. Picking up that text and applying it to Romans 4.25 adds that if we are still in our sins, then we are not justified by God. Indeed, the blood of Jesus Christ poured out on Calvary does justify sinners. We believe that our justification is connected with the death of Christ. But it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ that validates our justification. The basis on which God imputes his righteousness on any sinner is their faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the completed work of Christ. The resurrection marks that completion. And thereby we can know we are justified by faith because Jesus lives. He didn't stay in the grave. It is faith alone then in the promise of God's grace alone to save by the full atonement of Christ Jesus alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. And as we saw this from Abraham, it is for the glory of God alone. Now, I just want to conclude with a very brief point. This is a different conclusion, not the usual three-point thing I normally do. But I will offer a brief conclusion here in that our final moments in worship will be to remember the sacrifice of Jesus Christ around the communion table. But a significant application for us this morning is a faith in God that is unwavering. It is not weakened by our circumstances, by years of waiting, by facing the impossible, or even by facing our own limitations. Our faith must rest in the faithfulness of God to fulfill His promises just as He has made. And therefore, if you're following on your note sheets... Our faith must reflect or must rest. Our faith must rest in God's faithfulness to fulfill His promises. God has made specific promises to us in His Word. Our faith must rest not on our circumstances but on the promises that God has made. And number two, our faith must rest in God's sovereign control to accomplish His perfect will. God will accomplish His perfect will even where He has not made promises. When we go to Him in prayer, we ask of Him things. We don't always go to Scripture and know that those things have been promised to us. Therefore, our faith in Him and the character of God rests on His sovereign control to accomplish His perfect will. No matter the answer that He brings to my prayer, we can rest there because it's His perfect will. Abraham is an example to us of faith in God for His glory. And we'll close on that. Father in heaven, thank you for these moments that we have together under the instruction of your word, a word that gives to us a beautiful picture of faith in what you accomplished in the life of a pagan old man named Abraham. We're grateful to you that our salvation does not rest on our own works because then none of us would be saved. Our faith rests completely on the work of Jesus Christ, who accomplished everything necessary on the cross of his suffering, a cross that we now celebrate in the taking of the bread and the cup together. We therefore worship you. We give reverence and honor and all glory to you as we now worship you at the communion table in Christ's name. Amen. If you're willing, please stand.